ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. I did not upload a show on Friday. Unfortunately, I had a lot of personal things going on. I am happy to report that our search for a vehicle for my wife is over. We got all that taken care of, squared away, and it is sitting in the driveway as I speak. It's not a new car. Like I said in an earlier show, we don't purchase new cars, but it is a 2018 and compared to the vehicle that we turned or traded in for it, it has about 225,000 less miles on it. So a pretty big upgrade, and I don't have to worry about my wife making it up the mountain when she comes home from work now. All right, moving on into the show. I feel like I've done enough shows that anybody that's listened to me for any run of time now is going to understand that I am a small government libertarian. Again, I lean conservative, but it's because of the small government thing. And as I've said before, I don't actually expect the Republicans to do anything toward a small government, but at least they pay it lip service. There are several reasons that I'm for small government. One of the big ones is, is most people in this country won't take care of themselves. Why do you expect somebody who does not live anywhere near you, does not know you, does not care about you, why do you think that person is going to take care of you? Now, I grew up on the rural side of Virginia. The state senators never, I'm sorry, the senators for the state of Virginia, not the state senators, they never came to my area to campaign. And I understand it's a numbers game to them, and one county around D.C. or Richmond will have the population of the entire half of Virginia I was on from Roanoke all the way west. So it's not worth their time to go there. But even the congressman, the congressman from my district, I don't ever remember him coming to my town. Maybe it happened once or twice, and I don't have specific memories of it, but I have no recollection of the person that is supposed to represent my area ever coming to my area. But among the other reasons I'm for small government is because the crazy things the government has done to the citizenry through the years. Now, everybody has heard about the Tuskegee experiments, all the stuff they were doing to the black airmen of the Tuskegee Air Corps. The MK Ultra program has entered the pop culture lexicon that's spawned several movies, books, and the MK Ultra, just in case you're not aware of it, is the CIA was doing drug experiments and basically dosing people with LSD, among other things, but that was their their big big point of research, uh, was just dosing people with and without the citizens' consent to see if they could force out any latent psychic abilities, and in some cases, just to see what the hell would happen. If they, let's give this guy 10 doses of acid and see what happens to him. The history of our government is rife with stories like these. And it's, I find it interesting that the people that are the most upset about the MK Ultra program and the Tuskegee experiments are also the people that vote for bigger government and more overreach from the government. It It's one of those mental disconnects that I I don't understand how people can hold those two views and their brain not say, hey, wait a second, 
something's not adding up here. But at any rate, I have come across a story that I had never heard of. I don't know. I'm sure there are some people that have heard it. I think most of you will have not heard about it. And this story actually begins with the temperance movement. Now, the temperance movement got started, and it was in the country in some fashion for longer than this, but the 1820s is really when you started seeing these organizations pop up. Now, in the early years, it was mostly Protestant churches around the country. Seems like a lot of the stories I read, it was mainly in the Northeast, a little bit into the Midwest. I saw temperance movement chapters in, there were apparently a lot in Ohio and Missouri, places like that, but it was mainly a Northeast thing to begin with. And in the beginning, it was not a push for prohibition. It was an attempt to push moderation onto the people of the country. You got to remember in the 1800s, people drank all the time. Now, when I say they drank, a lot of people are going to have an image of their head of people at a bar on a Friday night getting drunk. That's not really what I'm talking about here. Alcohol was important to the people of this country and really human civilization as far back as you can go because drinkable fresh water is extremely hard to find. Now, I know you're thinking, you know, America in the 1700s, they were just these beautiful crystal clear streams running through it. Sure, that's clean water. There's a difference between clean water and potable water. And if you don't believe me, go find the most remote mountain stream you can find anywhere near your house. Drink a couple of glasses of it. And five days from now, when you're finally able to come out of the bathroom, ask yourself if that was a good idea. Just because water is not tainted with some horrible chemical doesn't mean you should be drinking it. There's bacteria, there's amoebas, there's all kinds of things that are really going to ruin your day. And so most people would drink alcohol instead of water. You know, they were not getting drunk. They would have a glass of beer with breakfast, a glass of beer with lunch, wine or a distilled spirit mixed with something at supper time. They weren't doing this necessarily to get drunk. I'm sure a lot of people did. I know I certainly enjoy to have a few on the weekends. But it was more the fact that the water would kill you. The alcohol, the distilling process, all these things would purify the water and make it to where you could drink it without spending the rest of the week in the outhouse. So at the beginning of the temperance movement, it was not trying to get rid of alcohol. It was trying to get rid of public drunkenness. People were beating their wives, beating their children when they'd get drunk. Now, even though it started out as a push for moderation, as with every other social movement that I have ever seen in my life, it starts at a reasonable place and it very, very quickly goes to crazy town. By the end of the 18th century and into the early 19th century, it had come a push for abstinence. Everybody's heard the term teetotalers. That came from this time. Um, They were ledgers that these groups would keep and people that were signed. I forget why they would put a T by their name if they had signed to pledge their abstinence. But that's where the teetotaler came from. If you had a T by your name, you were a teetotaler, which meant you had abstained from alcohol. You avoided it completely. We all learned about the temperance movement in school. Obviously, that led to the Prohibition in the 1920s. A lot of really interesting stories. I I remember hearing the name Carrie Nation in school. I don't remember ever going really into it, just that she was a very prominent figure in the temperance movement. This woman used to go into bars with a hatchet, and she would start busting the bottles on the shelves. She would use the hatchet to tear up the beer taps on the bar 
you know, I kind of learned that this lady was an activist. That's not the behavior of an activist. That is the behavior of a mentally disturbed homeless lady. Now, I'm sure that she had a lot of bad things in her life happen because of alcohol. Um, If you take a look at a picture of Carrie Nation, you will very quickly realize that her husband probably did a lot of drinking. I feel like he was probably drunk to get through the wedding. I hate to talk ill of the dead. This is not an attractive woman. And just the stories that I read about her behavior during the temperance movement, she does not seem like she had a rosy personality. But I had always been taught that she was sort of a hero to the movement. And when your heroes are going around committing felonious assault with a hatchet, that kind of speaks to what kind of movement you're involved with. But the temperance movement did gain a lot of public support. And, of course, that led to the 19th Amendment, which became law in January of 1920, which prohibited the manufacture, transportation, and possession of alcoholic beverages. Oddly enough, it does not prohibit consuming alcohol. You just couldn't own it. So if a police officer caught you with a pint of brandy, that was illegal. If you were stumbling down the street drunk, After consuming that pint of alcohol, but you didn't have any alcohol on you, that was totally legal. Another interesting thing I came across as I was researching for this was the fact that alcohol still was produced in small quantities in this country, and you could actually get a prescription for it, much like the medical marijuana cards you can get now. Doctors would prescribe a certain amount of brandy a day or wine a day, and you would go to a pharmacy and get your prescription of booze. And that's the kind of thing I always wonder why they don't teach that in school. History is a collection of the most amazing stories you could ever possibly come across, but all the teachers want you to do is memorize a bunch of dates and dry facts, and they turn it into a form of torture. If they would teach history like they're narrating a story, it would be so much easier to learn. People would remember more of what they learned a year after they got out of the class. It would just be better for everybody. But I digress. All right, so it's 1920. America has outlawed the production and sale of alcohol. America wasn't alone in this, by the way. Uh, Norway banned spirits for about six years. Now, they just banned distilled spirits. Uh, Beer and wine were still legal. Alcohol was illegal in Canada. And again, this is one of those things that is a really interesting part of this story that you never hear about. Canada banned production of alcohol from 1918 and 1919. They re-allowed it in 1920 with the caveat that it was only for export out of the country. Now, do you think it is a coincidence that Canada allowed Seagram's to start making whiskey again to import out of the country? At the exact same time, America banned it. We always say that Canada is a very friendly place. Their leaders are much more intelligent and much more forward-thinking than ours are because that was done 100% because they knew there was going to be a huge market just south of their border and they needed to be able to supply it. Again, I can't believe that that's something that's not taught front and center and I'm not impugning Canada. That was a brilliant move. But of course, the point of prohibition was to end drinking in this country. Surprise, surprise, prohibition backfired spectacularly. Alcoholism soared. We all know about the speakeasies. 
in New York City in the 20s, the population was around 5.6 million people. I saw a stat that there were 30,000 speakeasy bars in New York City alone. That blew me away. If they'd have said 3,000, I, I would have thought that was high, but I would say, well, you know, I can see that's a big city, but 30,000 speakeasies. I meant to look this up, but I wonder, are there even like 30,000 restaurants in New York City today? 30,000 to me just seems like an insane number. But of course, somebody had to supply all those illicit bars. And so people that were moonshiners and bootleggers went from petty street criminals into criminal empires. We all know who Al Capone is because of prohibition. We all know who the Kennedys are because of prohibition. John Kennedy's father made his money running whiskey from Canada to America. And I'm not just attacking the Kennedys because they're Democrats. JFK believed in a strong national defense, small government, personal responsibility. If we had some more Democrats like that today, I would consider changing sides. So that's not just an attack because they're political persuasion. It's not really an attack at all. I'm just bringing up that that's where that family got all their millions from. Now, I mentioned a little while ago that there was still alcohol being produced in the country. I was referring to drinkable ethyl alcohol, things like beer, wine, things like that. But it did not prohibit the production of industrial alcohol. Now, industrial alcohol is used in things like solvents, cleaners, fuels in some cases, uh, but industrial alcohol is ethyl alcohol, the same that you use to make beer and liquor. Uh, with things added, it's called denaturing the alcohol. It's, it's made to where you cannot drink it. But the law did not apply to the industrial alcohol, so that production kept going. And by the mid-1920s, the bootlegging criminal organizations, people like Al Capone, we're stealing 60 million gallons of industrial alcohol every year. And they had an army of chemists that were paid very handsomely to renature the alcohol, to remove the impurities and to make it potable again. That was where a good portion of the illegal alcohol in this country was coming from. Around Canada, obviously, it was easy to get liquor into the country anywhere with a coast, but the whole middle of the country, that was a long way to move the booze. It was simply easier to steal it and then pay a chemist to make it to where it was drinkable. So by the mid-1920s, crime had skyrocketed, bootleggers were now millionaires, drinking had increased, alcoholism had increased, you had highly educated scientists that would spend their nine to five days working in a lab and then their nights and weekends working for the mafia and other crime organizations making liquor and law enforcement agencies were stretched to the breaking point trying to keep a lid on this whole mess. At this point, Congress could have taken a step back, did a little soul searching and come to the conclusion that this was a mistake. We never should have done this. Let's do away with the 19th Amendment and let's just pretend like it never happened. That is not the way the mind of a politician in this country works. You do not admit that you're wrong, no matter how blatant the evidence is, and you just stay the course, baby. 
in late 1925, Congress mandated that these companies that produced industrial alcohol need to increase the toxicity of their industrial product. Uh, They mandated adding things like kerosene, acetone, uh, brucine, which is an alkaloid that is extremely similar in chemical properties to strychnine, because by God, that'll teach them. And they also mandated that the amount of methyl alcohol, which is a form of alcohol that's similar to ethyl alcohol, except for the fact that it is poisonous. And if you drink it, you go crazy and then die. Because apparently the only thing that Air Congress wants to do more than not admit that they did something wrong is to go after anybody that defies you. Now, at the beginning of the show, I was talking about the Tuskegee experiments and the MK Ultra program, and I don't want to give you the impression that I think that those were in any way justified or sensible or moral, but at least those experiments, they were trying to find something out. There was an end goal to the madness. And again, I'm not saying it's justified or they should have done it. I'm just saying in those instances, they were trying to find something out. In this instance, Congress was literally just saying, screw those people, I hope they die. In mid-1926, the new mandates went into effect, and these companies started adding all kinds of dangerous chemicals to the industrial alcohol, trying to prevent the bootleggers from stealing them. Uh, The problem is, is that while it was not a secret per se, obviously Congress did not put out a press release about them adding these poisons to this industrial alcohol, the companies just started adding the chemicals to what they were producing. On Christmas Eve in 1926 in New York City, a man stumbled into Bellevue Hospital. He was out of breath and drenched with sweat, and he told the nurses that attended to him that Santa Claus had chased him for miles with a baseball bat and was trying to kill him. They did not get a chance to run any tests on this gentleman to find out why he was having these hallucinations, because very shortly after he entered the hospital, he died. But this gentleman was not the last person that holiday. Over the Christmas holiday in New York City, just New York City, not the rest of the country, over a thousand people were treated for alcohol poisoning and eight died. And this sort of puts a twist on a staple of my childhood. If you watch Saturday morning cartoons, whenever anyone took a drink, they would start to hallucinate and they would see things that weren't there. This episode of American History is where that cliche comes from. It was not that alcohol will make you hallucinate. It's when you're drinking alcohol that's been intentionally tainted with whatever toxic chemical is at hand. The effect on your brain is what causes those hallucinations. We, it's a joke now. Of course, my kids probably wouldn't understand the reference. But that was all over the place on Saturday morning cartoons when I was little. And you just always assumed that it was, well, that was lower quality alcohol. And no, that was the government intentionally poisoning its citizens. And now it's on the Bugs Bunny and Tweety show was a laugh. I understand that the government doesn't want to stick their hand up and, you know, hey, that was that was us. That was our fault. But that is just a very strange and bizarre backstory for a cartoon trope. Now, obviously, this was just the beginning uh, across the country over the next several months and years. uh, Hospitalizations, deaths just skyrocketed. 
because all of this ultra-tainted industrial alcohol was starting to find its way into the bootlegger supply chain. The final numbers, there's no exact numbers. The average of the estimates that I saw was about 10,000 deaths nationwide. Congress never reversed course on this decision either. This was the law of the land until Prohibition ended in 1933. The Chicago Tribune published an editorial in 1927 that summed this whole crazy idea up pretty well, I think. Normally, no American government would engage in such business. It is only in the curious fanaticism of prohibition that any means, however barbarous, are considered justified. I think that's a pretty eloquent way of saying that the United States Congress just killed 10,000 of its citizens out of spite. But unfortunately, legislating morality never works. We have tried it on small scales on a lot of laws in this country. It never actually does anything to curb behavior. Unfortunately, people are going to do what they want to do. Alcohol is a big part of human history. It was a big part of American history. And I don't know what the percentage of teetotalers to drinkers were leading up to the 19th Amendment being passed, but I can't imagine that half the country was staunchly anti-alcohol. But these things enter the lexicon and they enter our culture, and sometimes, unfortunately, they sort of take on a life of their own and they get ahead of steam. And you can go to some really bad places before anybody decides, hey, let's put the brakes on, we need to stop and reevaluate things. But back to my small government beliefs from the beginning of the show. One of my favorite quotes of all time, I don't know where this is from, where I heard it, but it it just simply says, he who governs least governs best. And people really are the best person to take care of their own lives. I don't know what you need in your life, what's going to make you happy, what's going to improve your situation. You know that. I don't. You don't know what's best for me. There are a lot of people in this country that absolutely believe that they do know what's best for me. Unfortunately, they don't. That doesn't stop them. But it is quite obvious that our government didn't learn any lessons from Prohibition because we went from Prohibition. As soon as World War II was over, they started going after narcotics and the war on drugs. Now, I would love to get into the war on drugs. There is enough silliness and enough ridiculousness and enough bad decisions in the war on drugs that it deserves its own show. And I believe that that is what we're going to do next time, because I've got a lot of statistics on this that are really going to surprise you. And this is just a continuation of the lunacy of prohibition in a different form. But like I say, we will get into that in the next show. And that is about all I've got for you today. Again, I apologize for not posting on Friday, but I can't tell you how happy that I've shut the door on that particular task. Looking for a car is drudgery and it's irritating and it is not something that I enjoy doing. So I am ecstatic that I'm able to put that to bed for a little while. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed the show. I know I learned a lot of things that I did not have any prior knowledge of in getting ready to do this show, uh, but it's a fascinating slice of our history, and I thank you for sitting with me again. All right, if you would like to send me an email, you can do so at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com. And guys, I will talk to you again on Friday. I hope you have a good rest of the week, 
Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.